Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Ayobami Adebayo, whose debut novel, Stay With Me, has just been released. It takes place in the author's native Nigeria and tells the story of Yejide, a Yoruban Nigerian woman whose inability to become pregnant begins to impact her marriage to Akin. The novel raises numerous issues about family life, polygamy, the burden women often feel to have children, and the contours of Nigerian life from the 1980s up through the more recent past. Michiko Kakutani of the New York Times wrote that Adebayo, quote, writes not just with extraordinary grace, but with genuine wisdom about love and loss and the possibility of redemption. She has written a powerfully magnetic and heartbreaking book. Ayobami Adebayo joins us now. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good thank- evening, or oh, good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, where? so you're, uh, you are exactly where right now? So, I'm in Nigeria right now. I'm in a city called Ilefe, which is three hours from Lagos. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate having you on, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into writing fiction, where you grew up. I think uh, people have started to hear about your book, but maybe don't know a ton about where you're from and uh, how you got into writing fiction. Yes, I... I grew up in Nigeria in a city called Elisha, between Elisha and Ilefe, where I am right now. And Ife, Ilefe is a university town. So I grew up on the university campus because my mother teaches at the university. So um, I started writing pretty early. I was, I can remember writing when I was nine. I always remember this because... I was in my first year of secondary school, which I think is high school over there. And I got into trouble because instead of copying notes, I was writing poems. You know, I was punished, but that didn't stop me. So I always remember that. And I started writing poetry, I think because I was very quiet. And it's it's a community that's very witty. And um, I just never had the comebacks that were necessary to be cool. So... I, the first poems I wrote were basically things I wish I had said two days before to somebody who said something nasty to me. The comebacks you couldn't and, make, uh, yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's how that kind of started. Uh, so I, I was not, I, I, I wasn't witty enough to say smart things immediately, so I would think about it for two days and then put it in writing. And then I wrote a lot of poems very hungry poetry when I was a teenager. And then I started writing fiction, I think when I was about 12 or 13. So I was given this notebooks, empty notebooks as a prize at school, and there was a very long holiday over a month. And I just decided to write a collection of short stories. And it just felt like home, you know, fiction, because I'd written plays, I'd written poems. I think after I wrote those stories, I just knew, oh, I'm going to write novels or short stories or something. I heard you say once in an interview that you came from a very big family and there were always aunts around, your mother's sisters, I guess, and that they were all kind of talking and gossiping and overhearing them without saying much is what kind of gave you your interest in observing people and, and writing. Is that is that accurate? Yes. So I come from, my nuclear family is actually pretty small. My parents have two children. But my mother has seven siblings, and my father has, I think, also about seven. So, and because they're both the first of their families, 
then their siblings were around quite a bit. So my mother has a lot of sisters. So, I mean, when they're around, they talk about things. And also because I was quite, very quiet, people wouldn't notice if I was in a room. So, that, yeah, that did have some impact, that I would then just sit and listen to what the adults were saying. And I think I had quite a number of things I shouldn't have heard, but I think they were helpful in retrospect. Such as? <laughs> well, there was a lot of talk, of course, as you can imagine, about men. And I think I was maybe nine or six, or between six and nine, when I was listening to all of this. And um, forming very interesting opinions, some of which show up in the book, I think. Uh, Yeah, well, we can leave those for readers to discover themselves. Uh, Mm. So while you were starting to write, uh, and you said write plays and write poetry, were there writers that you were exposed to that that had a particular impact on you? Yes, definitely. Um, so I read, I think, also when I was a teenager, I developed interest, an interest in plays. Um, of course, reading quite a number of plays at the time. And I read this play called Death and the King vs. Man by Wally Sherinka. And the language just really spoke to me. Um, the language of the dialogue in that play. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to do this. I want to be able to write something that makes somebody feel this way um, when they're reading it. So that was one person that had quite an influence on me early on. And two other people that I remember reading and feeling exactly the same way about were Tony Morrison and Arundhati Roy, um, The God of Small Things. I, rem- I mean, those are books that I remember where I was and what I was doing when I was reading those books. And I remember reading Beloved um, when I was, I think, in my early 20s, I think I was 20, when I read it. And there's this scene where she switches points of view. I mean, she switches between characters about almost seven times on one page. And I, I remember stopping to read it almost five times and thinking, I have to figure out how she's doing this, you know, and just not being able to at that time. I hope eventually I will. But these were writers that I got exposed to relatively early and who had quite an impact on my sense of what was um, good writing and what I was aspiring to, and in many ways, I'm still aspiring to. So it was the craft as much as the stories? Yes, yes. Um, It was the craft as much as the stories. I think I became interested in the craft uh, pretty early on, actually, um, I, I think because I went through a phase when I was a teenager, I would sort of read books by authors, and I read a lot of popular fiction. So that I had a John Grisham phase where I just read everything, and I would just read those books back to back. Yeah, I read The and Firm in two days. <laughs> the best two days of my life were reading The Firm at like age twelve. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I would just read. I would just go from a time to kill to the firm to the jury to the jury to um the partner and I would just do that. And I think because I I still have a tendency to just read an author from back to back. I'll just wait for them to write three books before I start reading them. But I, I started noticing patterns early on and um started thinking about craft because of that. I sort of started thinking, okay, I could read a Sydney Sheldon novel now 
uh, by the time I was 15 without his name on it and sort of think, oh, this might be Sidney Sheldon. Why is that? What is it about the way he writes that makes him different from this other person? So I, I did start thinking about that in my late teens. And I think it's because I loved to sort of just read one author and just spend, spend a month or two reading that author before going to somebody else. So you've start you've started writing and you're in your late teens and at what point you you go to England to study correct mm-hmm, yeah okay and so what 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 classes did you take there and how did that how did that further you as a writer so um i studied creative writing in england and i'd done a first degree in literature in english here um and for some reason i didn't see that as in any way connected to my desire to write. I studied literature because I wanted to teach literature. Um, so then after that, I went to study creative writing because I I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was doing this thing and I just wanted to have a clearer sense and be around people who were engaging actively with the craft of it and... Um, sort of just have the time, you know, and I think that's one of the very important things that an MFA does for you, is that you just have this time where you, you don't have to think about anything else but the book that you're working on. And so I did creative writing in the UK and got introduced to the workshop system. I'd been, I think, before then in just one workshop and started thinking even more critically about what I was doing I said, thinking more about the reader. I don't think I really thought about um, a reader before then. I was writing all of this stuff, but I wasn't really thinking consciously about how they might translate to somebody that I will never meet, that I will might never meet, might never have the opportunity to explain what I'm trying to do to. So that's one of the things that I think, um, I believe I took away from the MSA, this idea that you're not going to be there to explain anything. The book either has to do its job or it doesn't. It, it has to be able to defend itself. Did you have any teachers there who had a particular impact on the way you thought about writing? Oh, yes. Um, so while at UEA, um, the University of East Anglia in the UK, we had um, UNESCO professors of literature and while I was there, Margaret Hatwood was um, the UNESCO Professor of Literature. And honestly, I'm still sort of, I still can't believe I met her and got to sit down in workshop with her. I mean, the first Hatwood book I read belongs to my mother. So she was, she said she had, she had just loomed so large in my imagination before then. And then to sit in workshop with her and hear her offer very generous but very forthright and candid opinion about whatever it was that you were doing that had quite an impact. Yeah, she seems fierce. Yes. <laughs> yes. But also very generous with her time and the attention she paid to the work. So when did you start working on Stay With Me? Um, I started working on it in 2010. Um, I sat down to... Sh- write the novel in 2010, although I'd written a short story in 2008 um, that gave me the idea for the novel, but I I didn't feel I was ready to write it yet. So um, two years later, I sat down and started writing. 
And how important was it to, for you to set this book, a lot of it in the in the 1980s and the political scene in Nigeria in the 1980s? Well, why did you choose that, I yeah. should say? Yes. Um, it was very interesting because I'm interested in the past, you know. I'm interested in history and how the past has an impact on the present. So um, with this book, it was very interesting for me to set it in a time that I had been reading about. And, you know, I mean, you might know that in 1980s, we're under military dictatorship. And then in 1999, we come out of military dictatorship. And it's as if if this part of our history is just swept away. Nobody talks about it anymore. You know, there are people who lost their lives under the military government that don't even get mentioned anymore. And I think part of that is because many of those dictators are still players in our political sphere, so they they want to suppress some of the stories. But of course, I was interested in those things and things that I had read about that I knew nobody was discussing. So it was important for me to sort of set the story there and have an excuse to read newspapers from that time and learn more and also sort of look also at how middle-class Nigerians evolved in a time when they realized that they were very, very powerless in the face of what was going on in their country and how in many ways the middle-class reacted was to insulate themselves as much as possible from what was going on in the country at large. So there's this very minor detail in, in the book where you have the characters, their parents, they, their parents have a house, and there's a very little fence around the house. And But when they decide to build a house, their fence is higher than the house. It's like a prison. And that's what you see in many affluent areas in Nigeria. But if you look at the architecture that predates the 1980s, it's not that way. And, and what happened it was that everything became so... There was so much insecurity... And it was a military government, so you couldn't change the government. You couldn't vote and say you don't want this person anymore in the next four years. So what do you do? You build a higher fence. And I, I, I wanted to look at that and the impact it's had on us even now and the fact that no matter how much you insulate yourself, there will always be moments of rupture where there's really nothing you can do about it. Are there particular ways you feel like the country has changed since the 80s that, uh, it, and other other things that stick out? Yeah, I think one particular way that I can talk about these things without being afraid that someone is going to knock on my door tomorrow morning. Um, because the 80s and the 90s, um, particularly the late 90s, were periods of fear, very palpable fear. In, in, in the country, and uh, particularly if you lived uh, in a university, commu- university community, because the military um, government saw the academia as its enemy. So you, you felt that sense, you know, people were arrested, people were taken, and nobody knew what happened to them. That doesn't really happen anymore. You know, you can really talk about things now. But I do think also that in terms of the rhetoric, the the kind of conversations that our leaders have with us, the kind of um, discussions, the kind of uh, messages that you see coming from the government, there's still that that strain of dictatorship in there that 
isn't quite left. It, when you said that a lot of middle class people are walled off from the society, sort of metaphorically and, and literally, yeah. uh, is that true of the academic and literary communities as well? I think that I think that for the academic community, it's probably quite true. I think that many people in the literary um, community do engage with 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 this society, and I think that particularly, very notably, in the eighties and the nineties, many of the people who spoke out and really put their neck, <laughs> you know, risk put their neck out and risk their own lives were artists, you know, Nigerian artists, writers like Wale Shorinka, um, like Candice Arabiwa, who ended up losing his life, you know, in the process. People like Chino Achebe felt that they had a responsibility, you know, at that time to speak up. So that while many people in the middle class were sort of insulating themselves, I think that many artists, Nigerian artists, musicians, um, stood up and... Um, Many had to go into exile. Some died, and it's something. It's 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 an heritage, you know, in in a sense that, as a writer, as an artist, you 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 sort of wonder if you could measure up to it, you know. I know that there's all these debates about and her, what hats for art's sake and your responsibility as a writer. I think if you're a Nigerian writer and you have a sense of other Nigerian writers who've written before you, it's, it, 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 it's almost as if it became a part of the craft. And I think it's because it was it was a time in which it was very necessary that they had to use the, um, the reach they had to speak up. One of the things that's striking about the book, which is 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 a lot of it is about sort of family and marital life in Nigeria and having children is the amount of humor in it. And I, I was just curious how how important it is for you as a writer going forward to use humor even in a very serious story. And uh, I because I read something with you where you sort of said that humor was a necessary way of confronting Nigeria and its politics. But so can you talk a little about that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's, there's there's a Yoruba saying which I'll try to sort of translate very loosely, which say which goes sort of when something becomes too terrible for tears, the only thing you can do is laugh, you know, and 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 uh, I feel that way sometimes, you know, about um, some of the systemic failures in Nigeria, that the only way to stay sane is to be able to laugh about this or you just you just lose you just lose your mind. So to answer your question going forward as a writer, I think it's important. I think it will continue to be important for me because um I think I do have a tendency or perhaps just an interest in some very dark themes and issues and it it makes the writing process as much as I enjoy writing, it can get pretty depressing when you stay with this kind of topics for a very long time. And I, I think even for myself, not only, not just for the reader now, I need to be able to laugh when I'm doing these things. I need to have some humor in there. And I think that it's it's such a part of, if I could use the expression, the Nigerian spirit, you know, that 
we just have to find something to laugh about, no matter how bad things get. And I, I hope that I'm, I'll still be able to reflect that in other books. Was one of the reasons you wrote the, the book, um, just reading the book, I was wondering if, if one of the things that inspired you to write this particular story was that you felt like you'd grown up in a place where women were expected to get married and have a kid and that that was to be sort of a central or the central part of their existence. Um, mm. is, that, is that Was that one of the driving things that got you to write the book? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I wouldn't have said this um, about two years or even a year ago, because uh, in a particular sequence of events led me to start thinking about this. But I, I stumbled on a notebook that I was keeping as a teenager, one of the stories I wrote. And the title was, it was a very pretty didactic story. And I was really surprised at how hungry I was about <laughs> what society was doing to women. And I'm not even sure that I understood much of it then. So I think it's a, it's it's definitely um, something I'm very concerned about and will still continue to speak to. Like you said, it's supposed to be the central theme, the central thing in a woman's life. And if it isn't, then there's something wrong with her. And I'm very interested in challenging that perspective because, of course, the, the same is not expected of men. You're 29 now, is that right? Uh-oh. Hello? Hi. Oh, did you hear me? Yes, I did. Oh, I, I just said, uh, you, you, I just asked if you were 29 now. Yes, I'm 29. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, sometimes when you ask someone's age and you don't hear a response, you get anxious that you offended them and they hung up on you. But <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm 29. Okay. You know, well, I was going to ask, and you're not married and don't have kids, correct? Yes. <laughs> well, you could probably sense where this is going, but I, I guess I'm wondering, have have has it? What has it been like for you then? If you say that there's this pressure to for people to validate themselves by getting mm. married and having kids, what's that been like for you in Nigeria? I think I'm quite fortunate because my immediate family is quite liberal. So there's nobody saying you must get married now. But I talk to other people, you know. <laughs> you sort of have to go to the market and talk to people and do things. So you're, you're very aware of these expectations. And I'll, I'll just share another anecdote. When I was leaving England, I was speaking to another friend. We're about the same age, and she was... She wasn't leaving. She was still studying there, and she was trying to come home for a brother's wedding. And we spoke for one hour about how she was going to field questions about when she was going to get married. It can get that intense. It's something you need to prepare for and be very conscious about how you're going to handle it because it's the expectation. I mean, I, I did a reading in late, and there's a gentleman who came to me, and they prayed for me to be, to get married, and I was just laughing, you know. And I really wanted to say to him, "You really don't think my life is great right now? I think it's pretty fine." But you're aware that that's the general expectation that no matter what it is you accomplish, it's still going to be measured against the standard. How important is it for you going forward to writing the type of things you want to write to be in Nigeria? I, I like it here. Uh, um, it, it drives me crazy sometimes, but it is home. 
you know. So I I would want to spend most of my time here. Going forward, I might decide, divide my time between air and somewhere else, but I want to at least spend at least six months of every year here. And um, I, I think that I, I want to be a part of the society. I want to be in tune with it because in many ways I really do want to stick to it, <laughs> you know. What did your mother and aunt make of the book? <laughs> uh, my mother enjoyed it. My mother enjoyed it. Um, she had a couple of questions, and uh, it's, it's a concern I think she's had about my writing. Um, it's just, why do you have to write about such sad things? You know, are you happy? <laughs> I think that's always a concern. Um, most of my hands haven't read Actually, one of them is around. I'm going to give her a copy today. I think I'm going to get feedback. But my uncles have read it, and they really loved it. So. <laughs> oh, good. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for talking. I will pray for you. Hopefully, uh, you will find a husband and get kids soon. And, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, when you do, you can come back on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much, Isaac. Good luck with the book. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you're in the Bay Area, I've got a live show coming up at Books, Inc. in San Francisco on September 26th. I'll be interviewing author Franklin Foer about his new book, World Without Mind. The book's about the existential threat of big tech. To make sure you get a seat, head to booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net. <laughs> 